Welcome to Empowered, by women for women. This podcast brings you inspirational women and their stories, their successes and their experiences along the way. Join us to be challenged and inspired. Brought to you by Invintage and hosted by myself, Trudy Kerr. Today's guest is a legend. For anyone who drinks our local brew or iconic soft drink in Malta, Sue Weenink Camilleri has been part of the household name of Farsons Brewery since 1982, moving into the marketing department of the home of Chisk and Kinney in 1991. Sue's move initially saw her take on the role of market research officer, but also covering brand management and the implementation of the marketing plan. After migrating to the marketing business unit, Sue was appointed head of sales and marketing in 2019. Sue is one of three women on the Farsons management team driving one of Malta's most successful local and export businesses. Sue was also one of the founding team of Voices, a huge charitable musical production that started in 1991 and by its last run was based at the Mediterranean Conference Centre with a run of 10 performances and seeing out to a record audience of over 13,000 people. Add to this, Sue is also a mum of a family of very successful and strong young individuals following their mother's example. Sue, welcome to Empowered. Wow, (laughs) Trudy, that's quite an introduction. You like it? I like it. I think you almost got it all in there. (laughs) Did I miss anything else? Not really that is really relevant. No, no, no. Well, listen, I've got to say I'm a huge fan. I've always been a huge fan of yours, Sue, because you are an incredible powerhouse of a woman. And you've been 38 years with Farsons. So when you joined 38 years ago, did you ever think that you would be where you are today? Did you have your eye on being part of the management of Farsons? Were you ambitious? I think I was definitely ambitious. I never had an end in sight, but definitely my starting point was never going to be my finishing point. And uh, when I entered, I entered in the 80s. No, you told me, because I sometimes I can't even remember which, around 81 or 82. It's actually 83. What did you say? 82. 82. 82. Yeah. Where basically I had just more or less come out of sixth form. Um, the education system, the university system here, I won't say was in a shambles, but was very, very complex. So I never actually went into university to study. Um, as soon as I finished sixth form, I actually went to work in London. That bit you didn't get. So I left Malta at 19 and lived in London for about six or seven months, working in a computing agency. So this is in the 80s, okay, 1981. Um, things didn't really work out. I never got a work permit. I was there illegal. So I had to hurry home before my, my tourist visa expired. So I came back home and my dad said, well, you've got to get a job. You can't stay sort of unemployed. So start looking around. And I remember seeing an advert for Farsons. I applied. It was for accounts. I had just my council level. Um, and I was sort of interested. I said, yes, why not Farsons? It, uh, it was a household name for me as well at that time with Kinney and Chesk, etc. And basically I started in, in finance. I spent 10 years in finance, 
I continued studying accounting. And at a point when I had sort of um, done, not, not tertiary, but it was a accounting technician exams, and I had done really well, and I had placed first in Europe, there was a vacancy in the marketing department internally, and I just really took the risk and just sort of crossed from finance to marketing. Hang on a second, you just qualified yeah. first in Europe in accounting yeah. and finance. Yeah. What drove you to move across to marketing? It, it, it was funny, actually, because um, one of my bosses, one managing director, his chairman, always used to, I was always very interested, okay, so I never just went and did my nine-to-five job. I used to hang around, I was very curious, I was fascinated by systems, by people, by the manufacturing plant. I was sucked into it, and I used to hang around and be a busy body and go and ask things here and then. He used to see me everywhere, and he used to say, Sue, he said, I think you would be really good in marketing. And I said, oh, marketing. I said, I'm studying accounts. I love numbers. I used to do sales forecasting. So I said, what the hell am I going to do in marketing? But then there was the opening, and they were a little bit clever because they combined it with forecasting and marketing research. So it was almost, you know, a little bit... I won't say tailor-made, but they definitely made it very interesting for me to, to, to take it. So I literally moved to, to, to marketing 10 years after I joined. But I can honestly say that the, the 10 years that I had in finance taught me so, so, so much. It's where I got the grounding and the inspiration and to, to want to go on to do more. My job used to take me to all areas to... The, the production floor to the boiler house to, uh, you know, pricing and forecasting and using CO2 in the bottles. I, I was exposed to everything. And I was just, I used to go home and map out, <laughs> for example, when I first joined, sort of how the expenses move through the accounting system to come out and how we should price a product, okay? So I was really sucked in. And uh, so the move to marketing then was just carried on with the next phase of the fascination. But I'm really at heart a numbers person. I never thought I'd be good at marketing. I never taught myself as creative. But the combination of the numbers, the accounting, the background, the discipline that accounting gives you. Marketing people are not known to be disciplined. They, they're not known to, to know how to handle budgets, to stick to budgets, to stick to estimates. So sort of me coming in with this background in, in, in accounting, the discipline of an accountant, but then the interest and the flair and let's say the fascination with brands and marketing was a sort of a, a good combination. Obviously, there's an awful lot of beer that goes down at yeah. Parsons. Uh, and I have no doubt that the company has evolved over the 38 years. But beer is quite synonymous with men. Yes. I and mean, it's... When we think about it, yeah. we think about beer and the guys getting yeah. together and having yeah. beer. Is Farsons a more male-centric company, would you say? And if so, you've described how you were ad almost adopted by the managing director and pushed into the, to your role. But were there a lot of men at the time? Uh, were there a lot of women at the time? Look, in, in management, management levels, there were only men. I was the first female managerial appointee in the 1992, you quoted the date. Before that, um, there was no female 
um, manager, a lot of women, but who all occupied more clerical um, roles, maybe a little bit supervisory, but not management. So definitely I was the first management appointee, female management appointee. And in fact, recently, because I was preparing a little bit for this, for this podcast, and I couldn't remember exactly when the dates, you got them right, because I couldn't remember them. And I found the press cutting announcing this sort of reshuffle of the sales and marketing team at Farsons. And I was listed there. I was still Camilleri. They said, Sue Camilleri, Farsons' first female management appointee. Up to that point, I mean, definitely, it was male-centric. Was it by design or was it a, a, a sort of a, a series of events that I don't think they ever excluded? I never felt excluded, Trudy, never. You have to have quite a strong character to push through that. Like I said, I was a busybody. I would go and p- put myself everywhere and ask all the questions and stay on after work. And, you know, with the beer festival, I remember the first beer festival I got involved in. I was a cashier in a wooden hut in our car park. I mean, now I'm in charge of the whole of the whole thing. So I definitely put myself out there. And I think, um, I mean, today is very, very different. Today, I mean, you mentioned there are three of the, the heads who are, are female, so finance, HR, um, and myself, sales and marketing. Is it equally balanced across management? I wouldn't say equally, no, but definitely there's a much higher representation of female in managerial positions now than there was 20 years ago. Well, let me come to that because you mentioned your journey over the 38 years coming in and then being in 1991, you being the very first person in management. Do you think that has anything to do with Farsons being a beer-related company for a large part of it? Or does it relate to the fact that particularly on this show... Malta has been described as having a patriarchal society, even today. So let alone 38 years ago, is it a cultural thing for Malta or is it a cultural thing for the industry in which you work? No, I wouldn't say it's a cultural thing for the industry in which I work. I don't think the Farsons management team was any different to any management team of uh, a large company at the end of the day. I think, and, and, and this is what I say to a lot of women who have asked me along the way, but how did you cope and what did you do and who brought up the children and what were you doing when the children were young? It's not easy, but a lot of it has to come from the individual. A lot of it came from me. I didn't get any handouts at all along the way. So this thing of sort of putting yourself out there to be noticed has to come from the individual. So definitely, I think maybe because I was female, I had to do it a little bit more than if I was not female, did I have to work harder? I had to work harder to be noticed because I was definitely on my own in terms of gender. If you want to take a male-female thing, I was on my own for, for many years. Well, you say that you had to work harder. Yeah. And you say that you had to be noticed and you had to be determined. Yeah. But would you say that there was ever resistance and challenges because of your gender? No. In my case, No. No, honestly, and I'm saying this quite honestly. Now, is it because I am who I am and I sort of was as I was? I never felt in any way any different because I was female. Never, never, never myself. So I would sit in a room with 12 men very often. Now with less because now there are women in much many more levels um, of, uh, of management at Farsons. I think in that time, so I'm talking about the 90s now, so... There is this traditional role that a, that a woman occupies. No, in society it is there. 
things have changed a lot. I'm talking about 40 years ago. I know it's changing. It's really changing. It's changing, but it's still a discussion no. that's constantly being had. Yes, yes. And it's been constantly being yes. had on this podcast. Yes, I'm quite sure of that because... Although at the time, obviously, I'm, I'm separated now. When we were married, my, my husband took on quite a lot of the role in helping us both manage uh, careers and bring up two children. So he'd help a lot with help. You see, this is it. With the lifts, occasionally the school runs. But one thing that I would always do and he would never do is all the planning. So timetables and things like that, it was all up in my head. And what you didn't add in your little summary is that for 12 years, I was on reduced hours, Trudy. So I maintained all this. While my children were growing up, I reduced my hours at Farsons. I'm really looking forward to talking about this in just a moment because I'm. it is one of the, the areas that I researched about you and I'm really, really looking to forward <laughs> to seeing how you handled that. But let's go back to one thing that you mentioned yeah. before we move on. You do have a strong don't mess with me kind of personality. You are a woman who speaks her mind, who is very compassionate, but also is a force to be reckoned with. So over that 38 years, bearing in mind that it's been mentioned over and over again, we are still in a fairly patriarchal society, still now today in 2021. Has that ever backfired on you, being a strong woman, and particularly in an industry that may be considered a little bit more male-oriented than female-oriented? I wouldn't say that it, it backfired on me in a way that upset me or I felt in any way uh, threatened or discriminated or picked on. But I do hear a lot that when a woman comes across as strong, then she is uh, pushy and she is moody. And Whereas if a man comes across as strong, he is assertive, he's you know, a high flyer, and we are bullies then. You sort of, if a female comes across as strong, she's seen possibly as being bully and pushy. And Why? Uh, Why do know. you think that is? Because I think you have to maybe do it a little bit more than the male. And, and it is because the numbers, definitely you are less, okay? So I wouldn't, I don't like saying minority because I have never in any way felt that I'm a minority, okay? It doesn't exist in my, in my vocabulary. That I'm, um, I'm, I'm assertive, I had to be assertive. And anybody I tell today who asks me about Farsons, because you said a legend, I think a legend is somebody who's past or finished but I'm still there and I still have a few years left to go so I'm a living legend but you know that's a living legend maybe but a lot of it came from me Trudy I got no handouts no handouts a lot of it every time for example my last position because first I was just of head of marketing and communications and I always, even at a time, I'm, I'm 60, by the way. I was 62 weeks ago. Did you research that? I'm 60. So I'm beginning <laughs> not to look at retiring, but you begin to look at end of a career, if, if I make it. At a time when maybe I should have been looking to slow down because I've worked really hard for, for the, an opportunity came my way. It was really an opportunity because somebody decided to move on. And the sales section became vacant. And I literally, I didn't even bat an eyelid. I said, this is what I always wanted. And I crossed the corridor into the office of uh, our CEO. And I said, listen, I, I want the sales. 
I'm sure I can handle it. I have the experience. So even for that, the last one, I went after it. And this is what I tell a lot of um, colleagues who maybe want to look ahead. You have to, first of all, believe in yourself. I think this is one thing that I, I'm, I'm proud of, that I, I do believe in my capabilities. Of very many times when I put myself out there and, you know, I had to swim very fast, otherwise I would go under, okay? But I take it in my stride and, you know, I think now, now in my position now, I have a very strong team and I've learned how to work through the team and with the team. Um, I had to let go a lot of micromanagement because I worked my way up. So I'm still used to doing things from the grassroots. But in my position now, I just can't afford to do that because I don't really have the time to do that. But I think going back to your original point, and I knew you were going to pick on this thing of, of about, um, you know, did I ever feel uh, that females sort of can't uh, or looked at or discriminated or a minority, etc. And I honestly... I said, you know, I don't believe I have ever felt that, but did I have to work very, very, very hard? Yes, I had to work very, very, very hard. Well, I love what you've just said there, and I want to just put that in context. Before we talk about you as a mother and you as your role within the family, I want to ask you where that power that you have and that self-belief comes from. Did you have that within your family framework when you were growing up? Or does that come from somewhere else? Look, I come from a large family. I have six siblings, so we're seven in, in total. Um, my parents, so my dad was a family doctor, is a family doctor. My dad just um, had his 90th birthday last Friday. So, And until two years ago, so till he was 87 or 88, he was still practicing as a doctor, okay? So my father is a go-getter as well. He sort of never really slowed down. I mean, he slowed down his 90, for goodness sake. So, And my mom brought up seven children. I won't say single-handedly, but my dad, being a family doctor, was out from morning to evening. And my mom did absolutely everything. The school run for seven of us, you know, two different schools, we all had our... Uh, after school um, activities. I did, you and enough, but I did ballet, I did piano, I did sports, um, I played basketball, I played tennis, we tried a bit of athletics, um, horse riding. I was a windsurfing champion for a few years, you missed that out, but we come from a sailing family. So, so. Can you stop <laughs> telling me what I've missed out? <laughs> but f from the age of 13 till about 20, to, yeah. Um, our weekends were just totally taken up with sailing. So even the competitive streak, this is what I'm coming to, I picked that up a lot from our sailing, So because we used to race, so first on dinghies and eventually on, on, on windsurfers. And very often I used to think, I'd be driving to work and I'm thinking about a problem, and th this thing of strategy from, from uh, the races and sailing always used to come to me. If you are not ahead when you are sailing... There is no way you can pass the person in front of you if you just follow their steps um, behind their wind. So the only way you have a chance, it's a huge risk, but if they go left, you go right. 
And when you then cross again, it could be that, you know, the wind does something at the side, which it doesn't do at the side, and you get an advantage and you pass them. But if you just follow them, but always under the wind, there's no way. You go, and I used to think of this so often, that if I'm just going to copy my competitor, there's no way we're going to gain any competitive advantage. We have to be different. We have to think different. So, you know, this competitivity strategy, um, thinking ahead, looking ahead, um, has helped me, but I was always known as well. I'm number three, okay, in the family. So two elder and then two brothers and then two sisters. I was always known to be the bully, the a bit of a daredevil. No, I had a bike, you have a bike. No, my, my first vehicle was a little Honda 70. I went to Cairo and crossed from Cairo to Tel Aviv on a bus on my own um, to meet a friend who was in Tel Aviv and I just had a map and an address to go and find her and get her back home. So I've done quite a few daredevil things, which today if my kids had to say, Ma, you know, I'm going to cross from Cairo to Tel Aviv by bus. No, you're not. <laughs> would you say, no, you're not? Would you actually say that? No, I don't think I would, but I would be fearful of it. I'd be... Uh, uh, I'll be honest. And I think that nowadays, because... So I did this in the early 90s. We didn't, no, late 80s. We didn't have mobile phones, no. So the, the, the fact that you'd only have to contact or make contact with who, whoever's looking out for you at various checkpoints, whereas now, if you don't hear from someone in an hour, oh, my God, something's happened, it makes it worse. No, it's it, it, the, the fear... Because we're used to always being connected all the time and knowing whether they're asleep, they're awake, where they are, yes, they got here, etc., etc. So I would be fearful. Would I stop them? No, I wouldn't. But I would be fearful. Well, let's talk about you as a mum. Yeah. Because I love the example that you must have set for your children. But before we even talk about that as your role, how did you handle your career and parenthood because we're still talking about a time where that was not necessarily a popular choice you've talked about the fact you took reduced hours but you didn't give up working and you talked about the fact that your your husband also took on a role again not necessarily a popular choice yes 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 so let me talk about two things one first of all my husband was not Maltese was Dutch so there, the total outlook was totally, totally different. So, you know, there isn't this debate of male, female, mother, father, the children are the children, we are the parents, and we're in this together. So I think that definitely helped. In terms of my decision, for example, to go to reduced hours, it was not a very difficult decision. And I'll tell you why. Because I had already been working for about 20 years. I had already achieved. Yeah, because I got married quite late. So, yeah. And I had already achieved. So I felt that it was the right time for me now to take a little bit of a, a backseat and focus on bringing up the children. But I never, I never, never, never lost contact with Farson. So I, I went on maternity leave, basically, um, and then went back to reduced hours. But for example, I remember making a huge effort to, if there is a social event, I would find somebody to look after the children and go um, for the social event, so I never lost contact with, with Steffi, my first daughter, who's 25 now, with Steffi. She went to a kindergarten at, 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 at age one, okay? Um, my mother as well helped us out in that time. Now, my mother had 14 grandchildren, okay? So we used to sort of take it in turns. It was almost like a, a little child center in itself, but um, in the early years. And... Um, 
And then when Alex came along, so Alex by number two, who's 22 now, Alex, I took a huge risk because I said, no, okay, we're not going to go with the childcare. I will look for a babysitter. And I saw an advert in in the paper, and I'm talking about 1996, okay? No, 1999, when Alex was born, 1999. An advert of this woman who uh, her children had grown up and she wanted to do child caring. And I phoned her, we visited, and she looked after Alex for two years, and we're still friends up to this day. She was a stranger to me, okay? So literally, I went, I met her in her living room, Alex was in a little carry tot, I looked around, I saw her house, could see she was a very family-oriented woman. You get a gut feel, no? And a week later, she was keeping Alex for me every day for two years. And still to this day, we're, we're friends and kept um, in touch. So again, it was a huge risk, no? And a huge gamble. But, you know, the, these are the steps that you have to go for. Now, we've talked about this quite a lot on Empowered. We've talked about the role of mothers and working mothers and various guests that we've had on the show have had different opinions. But bearing in mind that, as you mentioned, this would have been in the 90s, did you ever feel pressure to not pursue the journey that you were pursuing? Did you ever get criticism for taking an almost complete stranger and giving her your child to look after so that you could go back to work? The pressure only came from myself, me with myself. I never got external pressure. But I always used to um, question whether I was doing the right thing. Am I being a good mother? Because there were compromises. No, I would compromise. But I would always give, in those early years, priority to my children. So even if I was in the middle of a board meeting, they know that I have to leave at half one to, to do the school run, because I used to do the school run um, for, for many, many years. And I would just get up politely. I'd say, okay, and I'll see you tomorrow and I'll carry on. So, but the pressure never came from like my parents or my husband or my siblings or the people at work. It was a, something I actively chose to do. And the, I had to be really really committed and organized to make it work because if I wasn't it wouldn't have worked but there was occasionally this questioning are my children getting less of a experience of what a good mother motherhood you know because of the fact that I work every day because I used to work every day but I used to be home always from lunchtime onwards for a few years okay so in the afternoon I'd be with them and how um, did you answer that question when because I think this is something that a lot of mothers experience and even today in 2021 and a lot of mothers ask themselves yeah am I doing the right thing for yeah. my child am I being selfish uh, is this the right choice? Am I damaging my child? How did you answer that? No, I think I eventually, because I find actually found some notes, because I'm a person who writes down, and I found that, you know, I, and I say it to this day, the fact that I balanced, okay, because it is a balancing act, a, a career, which was still growing, okay, at that time, and bring up my children, made me a better person in both, because it made me a better mother, and it made me a much more organized, disciplined, assertive manager because I had less time to manage everything. Now, whether it was preparing a presentation or preparing some numbers or whether it was preparing my children because they had ballet and they had this, etc., then, you know, I, I had to basically perform. So I think it made me a better version of myself because I could never see myself as a full-time mother, never. 
I love my work. I say it to this day. I love my work. I always did. I like it. But I would never compromise on my children. And that comes from my own family I'm bringing. But I remember once when I was taking the decision to, to go from part-time to full-time. Again, there I was asked to go back in on a full-time basis. Earlier than in my plans I had planned out. Okay, It came about two years earlier. I said, okay, but Alex is still in junior school. Mm -mm. But if I don't take this, I'm going to lose my opportunity. So I remember talking to the children about it. And they said, Ma, go for it. We don't really need you anymore. And I think I was really upset at that. Like, sort of, and anyway, won't you be earning more money for us? And I really remember. <laughs> so, but that showed me. that they're, They took after they're you. Accept- they're a bit ruthless there. <laughs> They were very accepting of the situation. It, it almost made me feel a little bit, you know, um, my, my ego was bruised, I think. The fact, no, go, we don't really need you. No, we're fine, you know. It does sound like you had an awful lot of support in that, despite the fact that you are a very driven, very focused and very capable woman, you had support from your employment situation. Yes. You had support from your parents and your family that situation you had support from your kids and you also had support from your husband yes enabled to be able to do yes. that and a lot of women yeah. are not in that necessarily yes. in no. that position i would understand it's very tough if you don't have the support system around you i mean i know that nowadays there is free childcare if you want and there are many more childcare facilities there weren't so many in the 90s i mean you could count them on one hand definitely if you don't find the support, I'm not saying it's impossible, but surely it must be very, very tough. It must be very, very tough. But the resilience of women, and we've talked about this an awful lot through this podcast, is that women will find a way if they really want it. If they it. really want it, I have no doubt that they will. What I have seen over the years, I want more women to want it. <laughs> In the sense, you know, I, I, I don't see this overarching ambition in as much quantity as I would like around me. I know that might sound a little bit controversial. Why not? Why, why is there a lack of ambition? I, d- I, I don't know. I, d- I don't know if, if some, some people are happy just to sort of not go too far that it becomes really tough. But, you know, I do my work. I do it diligently. I start at 8.30. I leave at 4.30 and sort of I pack up my bag and I go back the next day. I mean, one thing that... Over 38 years, obviously, I, I, I have learned to live with is that my mind never stops, Trudy. I, I'm 24-7 switched on, okay? 24-7 switched on. Has this made me an annoying person? No, I think everybody knows um, that I, you know, w- when I go out, even on a trip, I'm looking at supermarkets, I'm seeing how the shelves are stocked, I'm looking at the bars, I'm seeing what glasses they're using to serve our beers, I'm looking at competition. I never really just go and have an outing without looking at the beverage market because it, it's part of me now. I mean, after so long, it's an, it's an integral part of who I am. Have there any been any sacrifices that you've gre- regretted, any decisions that you regretted that you made along the way? Oh, gosh, that's a tough one. Um, I don't have regrets, no. Regrets, no, I don't have. I can honestly say that. I mean, would my marriage have worked if, if things were different? I ask myself that because, obviously, over there, we were not balanced in terms of the career and the job satisfaction. 
I had a career and I was satisfied. My ex-husband wanted a career but was not satisfied. So it did create a little bit of, not friction, but a bit of a, a gap, no, a bit of a divide because I couldn't go home and say, oh, guess what happened and this and, you know, and they got a promotion, et cetera, et cetera, because I knew it would hurt him. So I used to keep a bag. So maybe a little of bit of regret there, but it's a little bit of a... Uh, a, a long shot, basically. I'm not saying that my marriage didn't work because I had a career, but could it be? I don't know. No, I don't have any regrets, but I, I have to add, and you mentioned it earlier, and I want to emphasize this, that I had a very supportive employer. So I managed to keep my job going, even before teleworking or home computing and everything, okay? But I have to say that, and here I'm not sort of showing off or blowing my trumpet, but I used to pack eight hours work, ten hours work in four or five hours, okay? But this comes from experience and, and sort of this sheer determination that I'm going to make this work, even though I'm working five hours and I'm doing a full-time job. Because, you know, I kept my status, I kept everything through my maternity leave. I did slow down a little bit for those 12 years. And then my career really took a, a sort of upward, a more a steeper upward trend. Once I went back full time, when my children were more or less grown up. Because from then on, um, it was basically I didn't have any restrictions. They were more or less through school, you know, and it became a little bit easier. But the years of frantic keeping driving around and oh my god I'm going to be late and they have the trina and oh my god I have to pick them and I find them waiting outside the door at school or I get a, a phone call your son is still waiting for you I had a lot of that and that would fall on me that would all fall on me um, I think another thing that was um, a minor detail but but my husband used to work in Valletta and Valletta if you go in and you park there's no way you're going to come out and lose your parking space whereas working at Imria Hell it's very central we have a car park and I was in between both schools so the school run was on me on and I remember I had a school run and I had to be really really disciplined that if I don't leave the office at 10 past one and then I'd go home and quickly give them something to eat and go back to work. And I did this for years. I did it. So it doesn't come easy. And, and this is what I said when I, I, I said I don't see enough of that. Because it's not just drive and ambition. It's really, really hard work. No, not hard work at work, but hard work organizing everything around it. Well, the rewards are you, you then become the head of sales and marketing, one of the... the prime positions in one of the biggest and most revered companies on the islands. Now, I think looking back, I, of course, I feel proud. I'm very proud, you know, of starting as a mere, I always say I came in as a 21-year-old, 22-year-old accounts clerk with A-levels. I think one of the main ingredients that helped me get where I am is this curiosity that I always wanted to learn more, to know more. So I went into areas where I had no reason to be there, other than I just wanted to know. You have to really love what you're doing. Well, I was going to ask you <laughs> for your penultimate question, for words of wisdom that you can share with other women listening to this podcast. And you've given us so many words of wisdom, but that last one that you just... Uh, said there to find something that you can be passionate about is that is that the one thing that you would want to pass on 
I think definitely. I think definitely because I think if you have the passion, it becomes secondary, the hard work. But I would say passion, interest, curiosity, and hard work. So nothing was ever offered to me on a plate. It was always that I, and yes, you have to have belief in yourself now. I, I really feel unprepared for something. And this is another maybe hint that I will pass on. If you know what you're talking about, very few people can push you over. You have to know what you're talking about. I have absolutely no doubt that myself and anyone listening to this podcast can feel that passion that you have for what you do, what you're doing now and what you've done for the past 38 years and it's really inspirational and it's very very infectious one last question for you yes sue kinney yeah kinney it's like marmite it is you either love it yeah. or you hate it you do you do you like it or hate I it? I love it. I love it, and it's not a biased answer. I love it. Of course, and my mum used to love it, and we always used to have kinney in the fridge before I ever started working anywhere near Farsons. So no, I love it. Sue Weenick Camilleri, thank you so much for being on this show. Thank you for inspiring us. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with us, and thank you for being this legend that you are. <laughs> Thank you, Trudy, and thank you for calling me a legend because I really don't see myself as a legend, so thank you. <laughs>